Literary Podcast, the only book club podcast that is now available in Microsoft PowerPoint format. Just head on over to our <laughs> Tumblr, to our website, whatever, follow the link, follow our link tree, and get to downloading, Amanda. It's a big one, though. Heck yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking five, six hundred slides, give or take. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I mean, especially yep. since some of the slides are pretty meticulously kind of scripted or narrated i think yeah i mean we might end up with a thousand slide powerpoint here easily and and also like with cool um the way that they change from slide to slide like those animated slides Mm -hmm. with some music overlaid yeah yeah i think i'm not sure how much in terms of gigabyte ad those kind of movements will include or will add on but it's going to be significant it's going to be hefty we're we're swiping all the time or fading what a sparkling mm-hmm. sparkle fade oh Ooh, yeah 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 sizzling i guess we're sizzling <laughs> from slide to slide uh, if you don't know why we're speculating about our um, new upcoming powerpoint format for the podcast it is because you've stumbled upon a book club part two episode today's book club will be discussing a visit from the goon squad which is a novel by jennifer egan If you've clicked on this episode in error and you've never read that book, that's all right. Check out our podcast feed for all kinds of other podcasts. Uh, Book recommendations, book club analysis episodes. Uh, We also do check-in episodes where we highlight the books we've been reading. So if you're not ready to have a visit from the Goon Squad spoiled for you today, then definitely hit pause and come back when you've read it. Uh, We are, as I mentioned at the top, the Lightly Literary Podcast. We're a book club kind of analysis podcast. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook under that handle, and it's all one word, so just at the Lightly Literary Podcast. Again, one word. Keep it simple. Follow us there for our updates in terms of reading schedule. That's where we promote what we've got coming up and give previews of the books we've selected for upcoming reads. So check us out there. And yeah, any podcast platform you can leave a rating on, please do so. It helps a ton. Again, book club episode today, so we'll be spoiling the entirety of this novel by, is it Jennifer Egan? Egan? I think so, yeah. Um, Yeah, full things up for spoilers. Any content warnings for today? The only one I could think of was uh, suicide, thoughts of suicide, and self-harm. There's one character chapter that deals with that. Um, Also, the uh, Jules chapter deals with um, attempted assault, uh, sexual assault. Yeah, that is true. I forgot about that. I... Yeah. Gosh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, I won't say much more. Um, though we'll be spoiling the book today. That was, a, yeah, it's an interesting, bizarre episode that that is definitely what happened. But it, it has such a strange interpretation maybe within it. But we'll, yeah. we'll perhaps cover that. Okay. Um, anything before we jump in, Amanda? I'm ready. Yes, let's dive into this perplexing and intriguing book. First, we'll begin with our segment for any book club episode, which is a 60-second summary. Uh, This will definitely be a challenge, (laughs) basically an impossible challenge. Uh, And so each of us will have 60 seconds to summarize the back half of this novel. In case you're listening and you haven't read the book and you just want to listen to the conversation, we will do our best to catch you up. Though with a story like this, it's essentially impossible. So again, we'll try our best, but this is going to probably go poorly. Um, Do you want me to go first? I I feel like I usually do. Yeah, you got okay. it. Okay. And do you, are you, do you want me to time myself or do you got a timer? I got a timer. Okay. Um, you just say start and I will go. Okay. And three, two, one, go. 
So we've got a newspaper article in this one or magazine article where the brother of a previous character writes about a movie star we'd met when she's just young and, and she's a rising star. And then he inserts himself into the situation and tries to assault her in a park. So we've got his story. We've got another story where we meet Sasha in college, who's a character we knew from before through the perspective of her kind of depressed suicidal friend. He ends up dying at the end of that chapter because he drowns and is trying to like do a little bit of an emasculating challenge or, or something um, with her boyfriend. So there's that jealousy. We've got the final chapter, which is a sci-fi future chapter with social media kind of out of control. Benny's trying to launch one more campaign with Scotty to make a famous musician happen. And so it ends with him kind of becoming famous and recapturing this crowd again. It's a very eerie scene. And I'm sure, sure I'm missing, because we don't script these, I'm sure I'm missing a chapter. Ten seconds. <laughs> there's got to be one character left I haven't analyzed. Who's? Oh, and then her uh, Sasha's uncle tries to find her in Italy, and she's running away from home and is in trouble, depressed. That was exactly a minute. <laughs> oh, woo. that was. I knew I'd forgotten. I think there's also one more that I forgot. The PowerPoint is obviously the one I forgot. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. So the there, there you go. One. That's the <laughs> that's the preview of this half of the book. If it made no sense, it's because this is non chronological and freewheeling and jumps around kind of unrestrained so amanda let's give you a shot see how your summary goes let's see what see what i missed uh do you want me to count you down yes please okay three two one go uh so in the first half we uh we, we go to the the newspaper article with jules where he writes about his actual attack on kitty uh who we had seen before who uh faced the dictator and like anyway uh so uh, he kind of tries to um, intellectualize that. And then we have uh, Kitty who, or not Kitty, sorry, uh, Sasha goes to Italy because she's been following around a band and her uncle 30. is sent to find her, but is actually interested more in the art, but he does eventually find her and there's happiness there. Um, then we go to meet um, Allison Blake, who is Sasha's daughter, um, and uh, about their relationship with their parents, um, Sa- uh, Sasha and Allison's relationship, as well yeah. as her relationship to her autistic son. And then there's also the chapter about Rob, who was Sasha's best friend who committed suicide, maybe? And zero. Question mark? Good question mark to throw on there. (laughs) Narrative does not make that clear, though, perhaps, coming off a drugged-out night episode. Excellent. Well, I covered the sci-fi chapter in the end, and you covered the PowerPoint. So we really covered all of our bases here. (laughs) Tried to. (laughs) Any significant plot lines that we left out? Though, yeah, summarizing this book is kind of madness. It is. It really is. I I think we did the best we could. Yeah, yeah. And I did. I did. We. I do think rather that we covered every chapter even briefly. Was there a story yeah, we I forgot? Think so. I don't think so. Okay. The uncle one was the only one that I was that I knew I'd forgotten and tried to throw in there. Okay. Well, let's move on to some quotes for clarification. That's as good as a summary as you're going to get from us. <laughs> Slapdash, <laughs> but effective. Um, yeah. Let's jump into some quotes for clarification. This is our second segment we always do where we each just pick out some quotes from the second half of the work that we want to discuss and analyze in more detail. I guess I went first just now, so I'll let you go first for the quotes. What do you want to talk about? Um, so the quotes that I chose today were um, because these stories 
I wanted to see how they connected in ways other than just like going back to either Sasha or Benny. Mm -hmm. I tried to find quotes that uh, had similar images or something like that. So one thing that I noticed was um, on page 233, which is from the story of Sasha in Italy. Oh, yeah. um, When her uncle is there. The final, um, the ending of that, the final image of that, they are, um, they're sitting in her room and looking out and he's like, dude, she's only got like three things in here. Um, it says, uh, he would step through a living room strewn with the flotsam of her young kids and watch the Western sun blaze through a sliding glass door. And for an instant, he would remember Naples sitting with Sasha in her tiny room, the jolt of surprise and delight he'd felt when the sun finally dropped into the center of her window and was captured inside her circle of wire. Now he turned to her, grinning. Her hair and face were aflame with orange light. See, Sasha muttered, eyeing the sun, it's mine. So we have this image of the sun, of fire, of warmth, of um, of also the, uh, the desert. And then when we go to page 284, which is the story of Allison Blake, mm-hmm. her daughter, um, she goes out on a walk with her dad. Uh, who was Sasha's boyfriend from uh, the previous uh, story with Rob. Um, So her college boyfriend. Yeah, they meet up again. I think the line in the book is something like, when I, it's like I wouldn't let him go the second time I saw him. So something like that, like I shouldn't have ever let him go. Uh, Yeah, anyway, they have kids. Yeah, she follows him to Pakistan and and stuff Mm -hmm. and they get married. Um, So on page 284... Uh, Lincoln runs inside and slams his bedroom door. This is the the PowerPoint mm-hmm. uh, stuff. Um, Mom follows. I stay on the porch with Dad. The sunset is a bonfire over our heads. Dad drains his gin and tonic and shakes the bare ice. Feel like a walk alley, he asks. So we have this uh, a mirror image here where before it was uh, Sasha and her uncle sitting and there's the sun and the image of fire. And then we also have here... Um, Allison and her dad sitting together and the sunset is a bonfire over our heads. I just, I really liked that symmetry there and I thought that was really well done. Yeah, she has, and hers a character, she's not like a simmering rage type of fiery character, but I don't know, she has kind of the most life in the book just given the things she does, the places she goes. She also reminds a lot of characters of, like, the life that they have or should have. We'll cover that in the thematic sort of essay, make it fake essay section. But, yeah, associating her with fire is, I think, thematically pretty rich and has some has some intrigue. Did Can you remember in the first chapter, which is, I think, the only one from her point of view, technically, does, it, does that have any fire in it? I mean, it's her kleptomania chapter. Yeah, the things that I remembered from that were the uh, the description of her hair as russet colored. Mm, yeah. um, uh, so she automatically stands out because everybody else is either blonde or a brunette here. Right, right. Um, but I don't remember any fire imagery in the very we, beginning. We know that she's not a tub person, so we'll at least give her the antithesis of water. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> a ward yeah. or something. Yeah, so she, she at least fills her fake tub with, you know, plants or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's lots of candles in her room. 
Yes. Oh, yeah, that is true. Well, let's let's go further with Sasha then, because I, I did pick a quote about her as well. I think I retract my statements from part one on this book. I think she is the main character. I mean, Benny, it'd be hard to say Benny's not just because of he's the anchor for, I think, the most people. But I think she yeah. gets the most intrigue and depth and stuff. Like, I think that she, her recurrence in the book is probably the most meaningful. Anyway, this is on 196. Um, oh, I said uncle earlier. I meant Rob, her. The person she's not dating in college but has, like, a, a deep emotional connection to. This is a page when he's thinking about their relationship um, and is just sort of, yeah, anyway. He's in, in her room. Um, he's observing her change. They're friends. They're not dating, but she's like changing in front of him. And it says, you know, the scar on her left ankle from a break that had to be operated on when it didn't heal right. You know, the big dipper of reddish moles around her belly button and her mothball breath when she first wakes up. Everyone assumed you were a couple. It was the deep. Uh, it was that deep between you and Sasha. She would cry in her sleep and you'd climb into her bed and hold her until her breathing got regular and slow. She felt so light in your arms. You'd fall asleep holding Sasha and wake up with a heart on and just lie there, feeling this body you knew so well, its skin and smells, alongside your own need to fuck someone, waiting for the two to merge into one impulse. Come on, pull this all together and act like someone normal for a change, you'd think, but you were scared to put your lust to the test, not wanting to ruin it with Sasha if things went wrong. It was the biggest mistake of your life, not fucking Sasha. You saw this with brutal clarity when she fell in love with Drew and it clobbered you with remorse so extreme that you thought at first you couldn't survive it. You might have held on to Sasha and become normal at the same time, but you didn't even try. You gave up the one chance God threw your way and now it's too late. So I think, and I'll cover this in a bit too, I keep alluding to the essay segment, but I do think she becomes a person for these people that kind of crash against and put their expectations in or against and sort of dash their hopes upon in, in a way. And his chapter is the most intense example of this. She remains very loyal and dedicated to Rob because she... Uh, because of her struggles in Italy and her poverty and everything and the way she had to survive that by stealing. And I was the is the um, prostitution thing true or did Rob use that just to kind of like hurt Drew? I couldn't. I, is that ever confirmed? Uh, the only thing uh, that uh, might have been kind of like that is the person that she stole and would turn the items into. She did say that at one point, like he did take his pants off. So I think okay. maybe she had. Yeah, they had like an arrangement together. There. Yeah, yeah, there's some yeah. kind of like an additional layer to that. It, yeah, yeah, she was definitely exploited um, economically and yeah, maybe sexually too. But yeah. anyway, so it's. But I think this is telling. Um, and it's an interesting point of view. I think it's the only chapter that uses second person, though there might be others that I'm just misremembering. It can be hard to keep up with all the stylistic switches in the book and stuff, all the different kind of little voices and everything. Yeah. But it, yeah, I, I'm not, I can't say I like love this chapter, but I think his insight into the way he processes her feels about her and their relationship and everything and his kind of hatred of himself lack of, and his lack of engagement with her, his lack of like connection with her the way he wanted I, it, it just i think was oddly enough rich in understanding her role in the book if that makes sense because mm -hmm. obviously we only get one yeah. chapter from her point of view anyway and so i yeah i found that passage i mean there's you know sweet details in there the things he observes about her but then yeah his his whole point of view is kind of caustic and a bit i don't know confrontational in a way even with himself how he's disappointed and he can't process his his failure to like make their relationships into something bigger and yeah mm -hmm. I, don't, I found that chapter insightful almost about her even though it's not her chapter 
Yeah, I I agree, and and I actually um, in the essay question that you gave me, um, I liked the format of this chapter, the choice of doing second person. It's not the first one in second okay. person, actually. Yeah. I think Jocelyn's. Um, if you remember Jocelyn, um, with the image of uh, where she like imagined throwing Lou into the oh, pool. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. I'm sort pretty of re- sure. Yeah, revenge. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that one was in second um, gotcha. point of view as well, second person point of view. Um, but what I liked about this one, um, as far as like the second person point of view too, is I, I think that fits with his. At the beginning, he says that it seems like he's almost two people. There's his physical body, and then there's the the, the ethereal self that like watches mm-hmm. what he does. Um, and kind of is the judging one, the one that's like, why, why am I not doing this? Why do I do that? And I think that second person point of view really helps to highlight that disconnect that he himself feels yeah. from himself. And I just thought that was really well done. And and yeah, the way that he writes about Sasha, like the, what a what a kind of like a pure love that is. And yeah. And you a never great lens to see her in. Later, he and Drew argue about this, and they sort of that's what ends up partially maybe leading to the motivation to swim in the river, which you know leads to his death. And they're kind of having a I don't know, kind of a masculine showdown of a of a type. I didn't pull that quote obviously, so we can't maybe fully analyze how that scene plays out. But it is yeah, it is telling about the effect that she has and sort of how people process her. Uh, this will also come up at the end of the book, so I think I won't say much more about that because yeah, I've. St- I've st- stepped enough on the essay segment (laughs) how about uh for your (laughs) second quote um yeah so this book is supposed to be about like music i guess and um at least on the back of the book it's like you know it's a a, (laughs) music pulsing on every page a lot of uh, of these characters you know they're at least tangentially in the industry is it some all i don't know (laughs) yeah um Mm -hmm. So I pulled um, a couple of quotes here. So on page 336, um, this is when Scotty, this is the final story where Scotty is uh, performing the songs that he had written underground. Ballads of paranoia and disconnection ripped from the chest of a man you knew just by looking had never had a page or a profile or a handle or a handset who was part of no one's data. A guy who had lived in the cracks all these years, forgotten and full of rage, in a way that now registered as pure, untouched. But of course it's hard to know anymore who who was really at that first Scotty Houseman concert. More people claim it than could possibly have fit into the space, capacious and mobbed though it was. Now that Scotty has entered the realm of myth, everyone wants to own him. And maybe they should. Doesn't a myth belong to everyone? And then follow that with... um, on page 331, mm-hmm. this is told from the, the point of view of Alex, who was the guy who hooked up with Sasha in the first chapter. Right, yeah. Um, and so it says here, let me find the quote real quick. He perceived it as a sound just out of earshot, the vibration of an old disturbance. Now it seemed more insistent than ever, a low, deep thrum that felt primarily familiar, as if it had been whirring inside all the sounds that Alex had made and collected over the years, their hidden pulse. So I chose those two quotes from this story because it reminded me, actually, of Benny. And when Benny, um, in Benny's story, when he goes to see that the 
Stop Go, I think it was the name of that band, mm-hmm. the yeah, Sisters. Yeah. The bad and band. He's, yeah, <laughs> but he's like so into it, and he's like, this is such a pure sound. Like, you can hear all the, like, the nitty grittiness of it and everything like that. And and what he's looking for, what Benny's looking for in that is just the, the vitality of music, the actual, like, um, the grittiness of music, the the what he considers to be pure music, which is just not overly refined. Um, yeah. And, and true. So that search for purity there and, and also how, um, Alex perceives it, which is the, the silence, the, the noises actually that come through the pauses in overall sound. Um, which the pauses is also something that is discussed with, um, yeah, pretty extensively. Sasha's son. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but Alex is like sound permeates this place and that's what makes it, um, permeate people. It's the, the, the lack of sound or the thrumming in the background, all those things that he mentioned, followed then by Scotty's actual music, which um, touches on everybody, just like the the scene of the footprint, which I'm assuming is the 9-11 attacks. Um, Possibly. It's hard to say yeah. because that story launches pretty far into the future. And there's... Right. It's, it, again, I called it sci-fi earlier. It is almost that imaginary with some of the... You know, it's like apparently the U.S. is heavily militarized at that point and has like a, yeah. you know... There's a like wall mili- in New York City. Yeah, there's like military <laughs> helicopters basically at all times flying around. And it's there's a little sprinkles like that. And then quite clearly the way they text and communicate is just like profoundly different like changes the way people live so um yeah it's what would you say that that passage then is the best representation of reacting to art or something because the the odd thing i found is that yes it's a book about music and i think we've touched on this passage in the benny one which might be kind of like cut out of the book the most pure reactions to music and expressions of it but the museum scene may have actually been with the uncle, the uncle who sees the artwork, the uh, Eurydice piece, I think it is. It may be the, I found it maybe to be the most interesting, like, reaction to art in the book, though, and that's obviously not music. (laughs) So I thought that was kind of intriguing. I mean, that's why selling this as a music book is, I don't know, it's kind of strange. Like, it's clearly interested in things far beyond the music industry, though, that's dominant. Right. Yeah, there was, um, like, as far as, like, the music stuff, I felt like there was Benny's story and then the last, like, two stories, because that was the PowerPoint, and then this story, the speculative fiction story, mm-hmm. the, the, that dealt the most with actual music, um, whereas the other stories, like Sasha's first story, there's nothing. There's uh, Rob's story, there's nothing, but... Joyce's story there's nothing you know, like it's not mm-hmm. a consistent motif I would yeah. say um, in, in this collection but I did I did also enjoy that description of um, the uncle's reaction to the art and how he's just like so appreciative of everything and like others can reckon the grandma who leads him to um, Sasha eventually like she she knows mm-hmm. that he enjoys it and she's like oh yeah take a look at this and like throws the doors open and is like and there's like a, a you know beautiful art on the walls and everything and he's just like oh my gosh it's amazing like I loved his reaction it was just so 
pure and also like the complete opposite of how he viewed Sasha at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, the, and that's obviously there's some eeriness and creepiness to kind of how he reacts to her and how he responds to her, especially in the club. And is yeah, there, it's it's confusing. He's obviously going through it almost uh, divorce like or something. <laughs> so. Um, Anyway, yeah, interesting. Uh, let's do my second quote, and then we'll jump to our essays, which we've kind of alluded to. So I just want to throw this in there because I will, I'll put my name on this. I'll st- put my stamp of approval. I do think the most successful chapter, weirdly enough, was the magazine article chapter. But I think that's a extremely kind of personalized or biased reaction because it was just the perfect mimic and satire of a certain type of intellectual writing that it just completely uh, aped it in the most perfect way I felt (laughs) and so I think like for example I didn't think the PowerPoint is maybe as successful as um, as other people did though I enjoyed it a ton I thought it was very clever and had some nice emotion to it but like to me the magazine thing is just just pitch perfect like it is the perfect mimic and it's clearly making fun of the the kind of people who dabble in this sort of medium level intellectualism or something. Um, So I'll pull a quote from that quick, just because I wanted to, because I don't think I'm going to be able to talk about it much more beyond these quotes, but I did think it was like the best chapter, weirdly. Um, So yeah, let me pull one quote from there. Okay, here's a paragraph when he's analyzing. This is the the magazine writer who's analyzing the movie star, the young star, uh, who we meet now back in time. She's not been di- captured by a dictator yet, so that's good. <laughs> and she's still, you know, living. Kitty's living, living well. He says, my, but my Pavlovian efforts to suppress the PR component of our lunch have succeeded, and Kitty falls silent. No sooner have I congratulated myself on this triumph, however, than I catch Kitty glancing sidelong to her watch, which is a Hermes. How does this gesture affect me? Well, I feel that slopping within me a volatile stew of anger, fear, and lust. Anger because this knave has, for reasons that are patently unjustifiable, far more power in the world than I will ever have. And once my 40 minutes are up, nothing short of criminal stalking could force the intersection of my subterranean path with her lofty one. Fear because, having glanced at my own watch, Timex, I've discovered that 30 of those 40 minutes have elapsed and I have as yet no event to form the centerpiece of my profile. Lust because her neck is very long with a thin, nearly translucent gold necklace around it. Her shoulders, exposed by the white halter top of her sundress, are small and tan and very delicate, like two little squabs. But that makes them sound unappealing and they were phenomenally appealing. And he just goes on and talks about, he says, I briefly imagine pulling apart those little bones and sucking the meat off them one by one. So I guess I couldn't pull that quote. That's the most ominous of them all. Can't can't leave that yeah. ending out. So I, there's a couple of reasons this is just a perfect send up. It there there's an author. You ever read David Foster Wallace? He's big on these footnotes, and he kind of writes in a similar register to this. So I never got deeply into him, though. He's the, he's the kind of author people really obsess over. Um, he's kind of a literary phenomenon. He also committed suicide at a young age. And I think like a lot of artists who die young or youngish, he that leaves a certain legacy and expectation with how people react to him. But this is, and I don't think he's the only author, obviously, who wrote in this way, where it's sort of like, it's as if a a heavily academic person just decided to get into pop culture writing for some reason. Like he, David Foster Wallace, famously wrote a piece about um, a tennis player, uh, Federer, Roger Federer, that became kind of legendary in terms of its its way to intellectualize sports and analyze them. And it's, it's like approachable, but super thoughtful and intelligent, but also kind of approachable. And this, I think, is trying to be that. But this is just so pitched 
to be a critique of this, you know, kind of sad man. He keeps inserting himself way too much. Again, this is something magazine writers can do, though, is they sort of they take a piece of study and they just turn it back into something about themselves. And it's really about their own kind of rage or disappointment or impotence. Those are all the things that it is for him anyway, this magazine piece. And I think that it's because it turns up the observations that he makes about her to 11. Each of them is a little too threatening. It's a little too direct. It's a little too obvious. But also it's trying to do a lot of the kind of intellectual, I don't know, like analysis and parallelisms and stuff that these pieces can do. It just felt, it was just so perfectly tuned, though my final thought on this uh, magazine part of the book is that it could be a total whiff, I think, if you just don't have a... If you've just never read a sincere piece like this is making fun of, then I think this would come across as maybe a bit confusing. I mean, I still think the character will come across as kind of uh, eerie, creepy, obviously self-indulgent in an inappropriate way and like kind of silly almost. But I, to me, this satire is just perfect, um, having a little bit of knowledge of people who write like this person. Yeah, it it reminds me of um, when I was doing, you know, going through school and in college, um, both undergrad and grad school. It's like you have to read these articles where the footnotes have they overtake the page. Yeah. (laughs) Another Foster Wallace classic. His novel that everyone raves about infinite jest is like half footnotes. It's like 900 pages. And I think half of that is footnotes. (laughs) Um. But I, I also really enjoyed this piece because it's um, it just pokes fun at that uh, particular style. And it also really highlights Jules, who, who we see before in Benny's wife's chapter because Jules is um, Benny's ex-wife's brother. Right. And it really highlights how um, in, in that chapter, in Benny's wife's chapter, he's powerless, right? He's just out of jail. He's like lost he doesn't have anything to do um and and in this one he's again he's lost and he doesn't feel like he has anything to do because he he's like this piece is like bullshit it's a celebrity piece like who even cares yeah um he again brings it up actively in the piece and makes fun of it and makes fun of his publisher editor friend who got him the job another right pitched up to 11 and kind of observation where of course the people who write in this mode are often detached and self-critical because you know they're operating within some kind of economic thing they don't want to be it's beneath them it's beneath their intellect but they're doing it anyway you know <laughs> getting muddy. yeah the superiority complex yeah, there yeah yeah so and 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 the fact that he's he feels so powerless against this woman um and and that therefore he has to assert his how powerful he is over this woman yeah which leads to the attack in the end yeah i i will say just to end my thoughts on this one i think the comparison to david foster wallace has to come first just because he really did po- not pioneer maybe but popularize that heavy footnote let's over intellectualize in a in an approachable way style but i think that he was he had problems in his real life in sort of his personal life but i think his writing is a lot more humane and kind this is again this is pitched up in just the right way so that i think it's a very smart satire of this type of writing this type of usually man who kind of approaches pieces with this selfish kind of twisted way which obviously in results in in literal uh, a, cr- a crime so 
<laughs> and, yep. uh, and assault. So yeah, that which is its own kind of intense pitched up ending. But no, I, I just thought this whole piece, I was mouth agape the whole time, enjoying the silly, utter the absurdity of it. And it was just, it's a really, really perfect uh, little satire. Mm-hmm. So I enjoyed yeah. it a ton. Yep, it's a, it's really well done. Yeah, excellent. Um, any other thoughts on the quotes before we move into the essays? Nope, I'm ready. All right, imaginary essay time. This is our third segment for book club part two, and it's just what it sounds like. We each have written an imaginary essay question for the other person to respond to. No, we have not actually written essays. That would be madness and time consuming. So we're just doing an outline. <laughs> we each have prepared some thoughts about the prompt that we've been given but yeah we'll walk through them we'll discuss them and chat about what made this book interesting i feel like i just talked a while so i'm going to give mine to you then first we'll have you go first my essay question was this it's got a preamble it's a very english teacher thing to have a preamble to a question (laughs) i think you can't just ask you gotta you know set it up um this book is described as a novel marketed as such too like on on websites where you can buy it and i think it is a novel i'm i, I agree with that assessment it stays with the same relevant cast of characters you know more or less the thematic ties are pretty rich it does it literally have a continuity of plot even though it's you know dramatically out of order and jumps around but it's also so wildly experimental if, if a person wanted to call this not a novel i would probably hear them out on that um so my question was just to write about that what experimental parts did you like did you find any of the non-traditional stuff enjoyable confusing annoying did any of it fail or succeed just feel free to analyze the structure however you want uh yeah so i think of this as more of actually a short story collection um which is novelistic in some ways because there is like a central perhaps theme or cast of characters that you keep going back to i'm thinking of like winesburg ohio yeah for example Um, but these stories can stand alone as well. If I were to extract any of these stories and take it away from the novel, then it would still stand on its own. In, in particular, I think of the Dolly one, right? Um, right. Uh, Ladal, like she's she's in there. She's in there because of um, her connection to Benny's ex-wife she's um benny's ex-wife's uh editor at one point publicist or something yeah something like that um and then later we find out that dolly's daughter lulu becomes benny's assistant in the last story um but aside from that like we don't see her really dolly um interacting with benny directly or Mm -hmm. sasha directly um so that is an example of of how some of these stories are only like kind of connected um in that way so i liked that story i liked the dolly story um on its you know on its face but I, i also think that it was the least connected to benny um and and kind of and it has a happier ending than a lot of the stories too um, <laughs> and it so ends it with kinda... a movie star kidnapped by a dictator so that's saying a <laughs> <Yeah>. lot <laughs> but she gets her career back remember kitty gets her career back it, she it, starts starring in movies it's again. true it does say that she was kind of released later or you know yeah is able to go on living her life yeah and dolly um decides to give up that whole life and like has a better life with lulu um as well so it's it's 
tonally it's different right at the end than the other stories and yeah, <laughs> she's not yeah. as as connected to the main cast um as the other characters and uh but i i, I still enjoyed it like i enjoyed each of the stories uh, in certain ways so mm-hmm. um yeah um I liked how experimental it was overall, and I, I liked that each story had its own narrative structure, its own point of view, and which also adds to my my argument that it's more of a short story collection because it adds to the ability for it to stand alone. It's not just one okay. big, like, yeah. Toni Morrison-type experiment where we have, you know mostly consistent with just some standout. Each one is different in its own way. Um, so we talked about Jules's article. Like I, I loved that one because it's like funny. It's um, threatening at the same time. And it's, I, I like that it pokes fun at the, the intelligentsia um in a way yeah. very philip roth um <laughs> <laughs> it's, i'm trying to i've been trying to like rack my brain thinking of other authors who I, the only other one i can think of another man who in his personal life has had extreme problems um who was uh huno diaz or huno diaz who was like a big this was i just think big in like the 2000s early 2000s authors who were writing kind of intellectual novels like you know literary novels i guess you'd say the the footnote digressive kind of free form writing in that or kind of like free consciousness writing the new that new wave of it he's another one i could think of um but yeah it, it just was a certain style that and maybe it's just because of when i went to school and was studying like reading trying to read contemporary books and stuff it just yeah there was a real moment when people wrote like this with sincere with sincerity and this is just a great send up of it i don't think that i've ever read um a fiction piece with mm-hmm. footnotes by the actual author before gotcha. so <laughs> yeah yeah those those two are the ones that come to mind first for me wallace and diaz hmm. um so I liked that one. Um, my favorite was uh, the PowerPoint for several reasons. I just love that there's a rando PowerPoint uh, <laughs> in there. Um, and I yeah. like that it's um, the way that it's structured is really interesting, too, because um, what Allison, the narrator um, in that story, is is analyzing is the, the family dynamic. And so there's a lot of... Um, so she uses a, a PowerPoint, which is a graphic organizer, right? So it's interesting that the use of that actually works really well because what she's doing is organizing her thoughts on on how the family is connected in certain ways, especially when it comes to the relationship with her brother. She's very fixated on Sasha, um, but she's um, analyzing how her brother, who is um, autistic how he communicates and how each parent reacts to that form of communication. And I think the graphic organizer does that just really well. 
Um, Some this yeah. I if you can dive into it's obviously this is an audio medium. We don't have our actual PowerPoint version ready yet. That was just a joke at the top, <laughs> so I can't can't use the visuals yet to explain. But maybe yeah. maybe talk through because this was mixed to me. I overall really liked it, but there were a mm-hmm. couple of the visuals where I just thought like, and I, maybe maybe there's a point since a literal child is making it. Right, uh, I don't think, yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't think each one is meant to be visually like rich or clever, or so, but so. Some of them I thought were just perfect. There's the one where she explains with the the um, arrow to arrow boxes what her brother means when he says things about pauses and how it's like she translates it into kind of into love and how he's trying to express his love and can't. But then there were some where I was like, this visual doesn't make any sense. Like it's some, but again, I think that I don't even know if this is a generous reading, but I think that is kind of the point. I don't think each one is meant to be intensely visually clever, uh, but there were several that were and like that really did work. So I yeah, there were a couple for me where I was like that that didn't need to be like that. That didn't need to look like that. That didn't need to be in PowerPoint format. Yeah. But I think that I mean, you know, you you taught middle school when when you are teaching for the first time kids how to use PowerPoints. Um they, oh, it makes no sense. It's terrible. <laughs> yeah. It, they're experimenting with it. Um, yeah. Oh, so. yeah, rightfully. But, yes, it's, yeah, it's going to be a bunch of bunch of nonsense. <laughs> yeah. I, I guess, here, let me ask this about the PowerPoint. It, was it almost, so weird to say about an experimental segment like this, was it almost overwritten or too direct at points? Because it had, I almost think, maybe my criticism of the PowerPoint is this, it's almost too clear what happens. Like, that, it, it, she really did put a short story into PowerPoint format, which is interesting, and, and, like, we can keep unpacking different segments and slides, but I do think that maybe my reaction was like, oh, this is almost too clear what's going on. I would have liked it if it was actually a little more, like, ambiguous, because the whole thing with the PowerPoint, and here's my middle school lecture uh, to, to middle schoolers about PowerPoints, is, like, the person shouldn't just need the PowerPoint to get it. The whole thing with PowerPoint is they should be paying attention to you, the speaker. The PowerPoint's just an aid to engage them and like keep you on track and like keep everyone focused. But like in this case, don't you feel like we got a full sense of the story and dynamics just from the PowerPoint? I think maybe in my brain it's like I would have actually liked the PowerPoint to be a little less uh, direct with me. I would have liked a little more confusion, actually, which is, feels weird to say. But it's like, because by the end of it, I was like, oh, that was just, you know, that's a pretty clear short story that was obviously delivered really cleverly to, to be done that way. But I would have liked it almost less direct. Weird thing to say. I I I, I can see your point of view because, yeah, there, it's a very clear story, but also remembering <sighs> that this is meant to be, like, written by a 12-year-old where they're yeah, yeah, of course. fairly literal. There's not going to be a whole lot of figurative language necessarily um but yeah like the i would have loved to have seen more actually about um her brother's discussion of the music pauses like i was i was like fascinated with that i'm i'm sure that there are like essays about this already but like is something mm-hmm. that i had not thought of uh with music and i was just like oh yeah okay great so <laughs> and towards the end the last three slides or whatever are all about the pauses and and um and the power of pauses in in the songs um in relation to the the length of the pause and those those final song. three I, I mean i think there's some emotional slides in here a phrase again yeah. that you never never thought you'd utter but i think there were some <laughs> that were really well done but the final three i thought were excellent 
just yeah. because it did prove the necessity of the form or whatever. It yeah. like justified mm-hmm. itself at the end by showing like this is how her brother has finally kind of, this is his life's work <laughs> up to that point and how he like sum- summarizes this the importance of this thing to him. So I I did the ending I really appreciated, but no, I think I mean it's this is I saw in a lot of the reviews, and I'm sure the ones we will talk about has references to it. This is kind of is like a put it on the cover, you know, whoa, grab somebody's attention. It's got PowerPoint. What the heck does that mean? And I just, I don't know if that would be, I don't think it's the achievement of the book that this is in it, but I am so glad it is because I think it was interesting and it kind of, it really worked despite, you know, my qualms or whatever. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, yeah. I also really enjoyed the second person point of view for Rob's story. Mm, um, yeah. uh, normally I don't care for second person, um, just cause it's, for me, it just like, often will take me out of the story. But for yeah. this one, I thought it was really necessary. We had talked about it earlier, um, in this episode is that, you know, Rob does feel so out of body with himself. And so I think that really highlighted that disconnect. And I thought that was just so, so well done. And it really worked for this particular story. Mm-hmm. Earlier, we see Jocelyn using the the second person point of view. And she does kind of have a couple of, like, disconnects as well, where right. she's, like, upset at Lou. And she, you know, she really hates him. And she's, like, struggling with memories of, of Roth. Um, another character who had committed suicide and um, but I I feel like the second person point of view didn't work as well um, in the earlier story is it Jocelyn's story I genuinely don't don't, it it was the only one Rob's where I noticed the second where it really did grab me at times there were some paragraph transitions in that one where I felt like the second person had an, maybe it was an urgency because of that he had committed suicide recently or uh, rather had tried to obviously it's nonsensical statement there but had tried to and so he was dealing with the fallout from that and his friends are very on edge so using second person does have a real kind of urgency intensity to it which i appreciated so yeah yeah um so it I think that in in that particular chapter or story, it worked really well. The previous use of it, I did not find as effective. Um, and I also really liked the the fact that it nothing is chronological here. Even within the stories themselves, it doesn't necessarily follow um, any kind of timeline. Right. So there's yeah. there's a lot of jumping back and forth, and and it lots of twists and turns and. I'm not quite sure still, like, how the story is meant, how the overall story is meant to be organized. Like, is it just character to character, but then like, it jumps between, like, Benny and Sasha's. I, I think the latter half is more Sasha's connections rather than Benny's connections. Um, but, yeah, it's just, I, I find that interesting, and it's still... It still, like, pulls at my mind to try to figure out, like, what is the actual organization here? How, how did um, the author organize these, these stories, <laughs> essentially, was the, was the pull through there. Um, and the last story is the most purely speculative fiction, as we talked about with the... There's, like, discussions of evacuations, there's... Um, a fear that permeates the city. There's the the texting that's being used where you capitalize the the letter that's um, 
Yeah, was it uh, like a syllable thing? Elongated. It kind of, yeah, it kind of felt that way. Yeah, so it's like um, the uh, eight. Uh, so if, if if it's the word, um, what was an example here? Hold on, I'll, I'll grab a. I feel like with the oh, ooh sound, ooh. like with an ooh yeah. or you know, like a long ooh sound it, instead of an o sound, something. It's like it's it's shorthand, right? So if um, it wasn't necessarily vowels. Um, but if we have, so it, it says for real, but it's lowercase r, big E, lowercase l. So if it's elongated in the sound, then it is capitalized. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, so I, I, I liked that aspect, but I also found myself wishing that I had more information about this this world that they're in with these um these handhelds and and what's going on why is there so much uh, like military presence and stuff i i really liked that there was some like oddness to it but also i was like okay but but there's no um real exploration with that so i think it's a, a worthy enough weird, strained sci-fi background to crash the music against. I mean, it really is Scotty's yeah. moment. It's, I think the yeah. right way to read that final chapter, even short story, would just be to say, it's just about Scotty's triumph, you know, look at his prevalence, look at his prominence, even if he's a little, you know, boozed up and boozed out. <laughs> and yeah, and so it's just sort of, it really is his moment. We We suspected if he would come back or we suspected that he may, and he did. Yeah. And and I like the irony of the fact that he's he is so disconnected from everyone and everything, right? Like he's so underground, but his concert is this force to bring everyone together. Mm-hmm. So he's actually like this this connector of people, even though he's so disconnected. So I, I liked that irony there too. Yeah, definitely. I a worthy concluding chapter two. I was. I think at that point, since you're, if you're that far in the novel, you're used to the switch-ups and the change-ups and everything. I was so fascinated to see which characters would show up and how, and yeah, I was happy to see Lulu there, too. Any of the other experimental chapters, or does that cover the... I guess those were the really big ones. It's the magazine, the PowerPoint, and I think that sci-fi chapter at the end. Yeah, those are the ones that stood out to me, anyway. Excellent, yeah, very, very good. Um, throw yours my way, and I'll do my best to respond. Yeah. Uh, there are a few characters to make appearances in several of these stories. There's Benny, Scotty, and Sasha being the most often who appear. Uh, Benny is the character, I think, that ties all the characters together, um, except for two of Sasha's stories involving her college friend Rob and her children. What is Sasha's role in this novel? Does she symbolize anything or anyone? What is the significance of beginning and ending the novel with Sasha? Yeah, she, I think, ends up becoming the main character for me. Not in terms of maybe, again, logical character plot point connections, but just kind of interest to the themes, interest to the ideas the novel's working with, all that stuff. So I think it's, yeah, it's it's a good choice. Um, though picking, I don't know, picking any main character for this book is madness anyway. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but she does, yeah, I think it's it's the right, right person maybe to fixate on. So let's go from the back to the front, maybe. Um, 
it, seeing a final scene, I think, is pretty illuminating for a lot of a lot of novels. And the final scene is just men kind of chasing her, like not literally, but just trying to trying to crash their nostalgia against her and trying to. Re- re- revive something that's been lost in a way i mean obviously it comes after a literal concert where benny's done that to his career so it's like this resurgent person regaining some kind of prominence or power with with scotty and then obviously alex is the whole chapter just baffled like he knows that he met benny this way but can't at all remember her and kind of has this vague recollection of maybe i hooked up with her one night maybe i you know slept with her this one time and so the fact that the book ends with them at her apartment just sort of trying to relive their connection to her i think once you take that kind of just basic analytical lens of like okay let's assume sasha's a character in this novel uh, against whom men will kind of push themselves and like explore themselves it almost reveals every other connection she has which so i don't know i don't want to say i unlocked something but it di- it did feel like as soon as i made that connection every other time she shows up in the book it make it's like how you can read her so let's run through a couple readings like that uh rob we've discussed already in depth i don't need to reread his pages but like his whole self-perception is through her when she gets into bed when he's in the hospital after a suicide attempt she says like you know we, we're survivors the two of us you can never do this again you can't die like we you know you and i are linked in this way it then becomes this she not ed she becomes this kind of object of obsession and then frustration when they're when they're not together for him and it does almost indirectly lead to his death did that connection does that connection make sense yeah Mm um on 201 uh what they say is um or what she says is you know we're the survivors not everyone is but we are okay and she's laying there alongside him um, says you tried to hold her, but your hands were stuffed animal stumps and you couldn't move them, which means you can't ever do that again. She said, ever, ever, ever. Do you promise me? And he says, I promised her and I, you meant it. You wouldn't break a promise to Sasha. And yeah, so it's it is this intense connection that kind of grounds him on Earth and keeps him alive, gives him a reason to stay alive. And again, I already read the quotes when they're when he's like sleeping next to her. And so there is this intensity for him that she's the grounding force that I don't know, relates him to life. Then there's, let's jump to her uncle, because he has a a really strange and kind of off-putting encounter with her on the dance floor. Um, She says, come on, let's dance. She's taking him on this Italian dance floor. Um, It says, hurting him onto the dance floor, a liquid mass of bodies that provoked in Ted a frightened sensation of shyness. He hesitated, resisting, but Sasha hauled him in among the other dancers, and instantly he felt buoyed, suspended. How long it had been since he danced in a nightclub, 15 years or more. Um, He began to move, feeling hulking, bearish in his professor's tweed, moving his feet in some approximation of dance step until he noticed that Sasha wasn't moving at all. She stood still, watching him, and then she reached for him encircled Ted with her long arms and clung to him so that he felt her modest bulk, the height and weight of this new Sasha, his grown-up niece who had once been so small, and the irrevocability of that transformation released in Ted a ragged sorrow. So his throat seized up and a painful tingling fizzed in his nostrils. He cleaved to Sasha, but she was gone, that little girl, gone with the passionate boy who had loved her. And then she pulled away and robbed him, or had somebody else rob him. I can't remember who who did it. But it's another, yeah, it's like this, this anchor for his nostalgia about how he processes the passage of time his sorrow he says over that and this it evokes in him this like deep bodily reaction 
And so it's another example of how she is a way for this man who has is having a midlife crisis about his career, about his marriage. There are the scenes in that chapter where he kind of can't connect with his wife anymore. And I believe he compares it to origami that he like folds up his love for her. And now it's so small, he can't see it or feel it. Um, so there's that kind of extended metaphor. But no, in terms of Sasha's role, again, it's another case where she's kind of in she's on her own journey of course and is experimenting in her own ways but it she stands as this way for him to kind of feel out his own life and observe his own life and she is an anchor or kind of a mirror for him to see that um not sure if you felt that way too about that chapter yeah yeah she's um she's like the innocence that he lost right and and he's so sad that she's also lost it and that's why he was so afraid of her too he like says that he actively disliked her and, and feared her um, mm-hmm. as she got older and it's that loss of it's, it's the, the loss of, of that purity yeah. that he's mourning. Yeah, yeah and then of course the revelation that she's living in squalor and was lying about her whole life. She has she has the dress where she looked really beautiful and presentable but it's the only thing she owns <laughs> and it's hanging yeah. up on the, in the closet or it's the only clothing item she has. And so yeah there's that disillusionment at the end of, that he has but he does stay and you know tr- seem to try and care for her and help her out and everything but it's yeah it's another case where a character is just meant to sort of reflect um through her uh, like a prism or something (laughs) come out on the other side and so let's not end there though and then i guess i could say that same thing for benny benny relies on her he calls her three quarters of his brain she's like the best thing that ever happened to him he also tries to profess his love and she laughs at him and is like come on let's not (laughs) don't do this what are you doing this is stupid and so she you know she tells him off pretty pretty ably but let's let's jump back then to the intro because those are so those are some of the male characters who kind of you know again bounce off of her reflect things through her but this is in her therapy session one of the final things she says or thinks um, she's keenly aware of her therapist there she says she wanted badly to please him to say something like it was a turning point everything feels different now or I'm changing redemption transformation God how she wanted these things every day every minute didn't everyone and then she says please um, don't ask me how I feel so she is kind of avoiding this problem but trying maybe trying to improve and uh, yeah I don't know I think uh, in her own journey then and where she ends up with her family she kind of escapes the busy business music life and into the desert <laughs> a kind of serene quiet life just with her kids and her husband i do think that's a fitting enough end if we can analyze her kind of on her own terms her own journey to moving through these traumatic life experiences she's had an abusive life her father abused her like physically would hit her and then she just yeah had to survive all these ordeals ran away from home I don't know. There, there's kind of like a catalog of traumas you could list out for her. But yeah, it's, she's she's ser- searching for peace, searching for some kind of I- inner clarity. And I feel like in the PowerPoint chapter, she's she's close, you know, like maybe her husband drinks too many gin and tonics and maybe her daughter makes fun of her too much. But there is a certain kind of serenity to it. Um that I think I just wanted to mention her own little arc that the story gives her. Because I, as soon as I came up with that reading of like, huh, she really is this thing for these men to kind of process themselves through, then I thought, well, I, you know, what does her own story mean, though? Because she does have a little bit of a, a journey. So that that's yeah. how I would read her own. Yeah, that she's almost this kind of catalog of, of 2010s traumas, 2000s traumas, and is able to, I don't know, find some kind of peace. Do you read the desert life as peace for her? I do because um, one of the 
things that um, I picked up on was that she makes sculptures out of um, the the essentially the the left behind things around her, the trash, and she allows it to um, be part of the natural cycle. I think is how she put it, where it's it's meant to kind of like be covered. She recycles it, upcycles it, and then allows the desert to retake it. Um, yeah, the snakes are back. Damn yeah. the snakes. <laughs> they won't leave me be. <laughs> leave me alone, snakes. But I, I think that she has a pretty uh, happy ending overall. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm interested in... Because she has two men in her life at that point as well. She's got her 16-year-old son, I think. Um, and then she's got her husband. Do you think that... Um, the lens that you had just discussed as far as like her relationship with the men and how the men use her as, as a, a kind of almost sounding board. Do you think that that works as well in the PowerPoint chapter with either her husband or her son? Yeah. There's a couple quotes in there where the father drew says things like, thank God she's the forgiving type or like, Oh, she'll definitely forgive me for this. And you know, the fact that she followed him to Pakistan for his, I'm assuming doctors without borders. That's just a, I don't think they say that, but that's just what I'm guessing he was doing because he ended up being a doctor, not a, not a Congressman. So <laughs> bailed on that life <laughs> on that dream. But anyway, yeah, I think so. And there's also, we could, if you want to take my reading further, uh, um, when the son gets agitated and Drew can't connect with him and kind of lashes out verbally, just kind of like is frustrated, she's the one who comforts him. She kind of pushes Drew away and goes to comfort the son and kind of takes, I don't know, takes responsibility of that. And I think it's it's a tougher read with the PowerPoints because of the stylistic nature of it. But I do think the reading it even holds up there. Maybe I'm wrong, but I do even think you could read that chapter sort of like she is a kind of soother for the family that is having its own, you know, tribulations and a hard time raising their son uh, with autism and things. And so, yeah, I think you could even hold her up to that and it would hold up there as well. A strange comforter of certain certain type of broken man, I guess. I don't know. It's yeah, and I'm, uh, you know, I, I'm suspicious of any readings that feel complete or that unlock something complete. But I really couldn't find fault with it as soon as I thought about that end scene and was like, why does she come up again at the end? Like, why are they in front of her apartment and why is there that nostalgia? But no, I think it, I think reading her that way, yeah, it it just kind of works in almost every appearance she makes. Yeah. Strangely. So any other thoughts on, on Sasha? No, I think that was really well done. Uh, a main character if we ever had one in this book. So we'll, we'll give her the credit <laughs> for it. Her and, yeah, I think Benny you are right about before. Okay, let's do our final couple segments here. We're reaching the end of the pod. Uh, let's start with critical assistance, our fourth segment. This is when we pull an outside criticism of the work. It could be a review, uh, an article, some kind of essay about the book. And we discuss it, give some quotes from it, and see what we think of the criticism. Let's jump in with yours first. Again, I feel like I just just went on. So, where'd you pick from this week? Um, I chose it from. I I think it might be like a blog. I'm not sure, um, but it's by somebody who calls himself the literary omnivore, and okay. it's called "Review: A Visit from the Goon Squad." Um, so she generally had a like like a mostly positive but also she didn't seem to like the book as much so I just thought nice. that, that was interesting that's yeah. good yeah yeah 
Um, shifting from the 1960s to the 1980s to the near future, Egan examined the aging process in a digital world, increasingly focused on youth culture, jumping from disaffected young punks to suburban housewives to aged rock stars. Um, <clears throat> I Before this, I didn't actually think about uh, the fact that uh, my my focus was on on the power dynamics and how each of the characters seems to struggle with the idea of power and like being empowered. So, <clears throat> um, reading this article actually, I was like, oh, it it does have stuff about nostalgia, about the aging process, and about time. I mean, like, right, the Goon Squad is a r- direct reference to time, yeah, um, that, and yeah. aging. So I was I just like had skimmed over that. So when when I read that sentence, I was like, oh yeah, okay, right. <laughs> yeah, and time the way it jumps around and is presented, it's fitting enough. The Goon Squad, yeah. indeed. Yeah. So so it took me that sentence to 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 bring it out in me, and I was like, okay, I got it now. Um, she goes on to say, while Jennifer Egan calls A Visit from the Goon Squad a novel, it's functionally a short story collection focused on the same theme with a shared cast. In fact, three chapters were originally published as short stories in The New Yorker. The opening chapter was published in 2007. I'm not quite sure what to make of this. On one hand, Egan can do what she wants. On another, I find it a little disingenuous to present this as a novel. In any case, it's functionally a short story collection to me. While characters crop up again and again, we don't explore them as deeply as we could in a novel dedicated to them. While the fact that the characters know each other or know of each other makes the transition smoother, the stories aren't particularly related to each other, save in their focus on aging in the digital age and how awful that is. Um, so I agree with her that this, it, to me, it reads more as a short story collection rather than a novel. When we see, when I think of a novel, I think of um, character growth. We, I think we see that perhaps with Sasha. But she's such a peripheral character. The Really, the only basis I have on that is on the fact that she was a kleptomaniac and now she has, like, a happy, healthy life. Um, so well, he just sort of re- it reversed it, inversed it. She reclaims and de- gives back, in, I guess, in a way. I hadn't really thought about that, yeah. but yeah, sort of that. Yeah. Yeah, so, but it, I, I agree that, to me, this doesn't seem as much as as a novel necessarily, but more of a short story collection, especially if she has already, she, she had previously published three of these chapters as short stories before. So mm-hmm. that, that just reinforces my, that idea for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she goes on, um, in that focus, a visit from the Goon Squad is incredibly dark. It's not just the fact that people die unsatisfied with life, um, cheat on each other, steal, and otherwise act abominably, but the fact that there's very little redeeming value about any of them. Oh, no. The closest we get... The I don't like it line of criticism. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> the blogs have come for us. Oh, Jesus. I just have to endure this, don't I? <laughs> I didn't like the book. I can't, I don't like the. I can't connect to any of the characters. Okay, sorry. Just keep going. 
The closest we get to hope is in the novel's most interesting piece, a PowerPoint journal written by Sasha's daughter, a little in the future. In diagrams that could have turned out gimmicky but are surprisingly handled well, the little girl con- contemplates her parents' history, her family's connection, and her autistic brother's relationship with their father. This short story is an absolute relief awash as the reader has been in a landscape of crushed hopes and dreams. It's one of two pieces where Egan flirts with near-future science fiction, imagining the evolution of media and our dependence on electronics. Um, So I had not thought about the dependence on electronics, but that totally makes sense with Benny's um, disdain for new sounds in the studio and how not gritty it sounds anymore. Um, how disingenuous that feels. But um, she makes a point here about how dark the stories are. And it's true. Like, uh, most of the stories are pretty unhappily ended. The The least unhappy endings are Dolly's story, the PowerPoint, and the final story. Yeah. Um, otherwise, that it's it's pretty bleak. For, for music lovers out there, apparently. Um, yeah. I don't know. So what I about the Scotty one? Or did you say that one? The Scotty concert at the end? Yeah, the Scotty concert at the end. So there's only three stories that I felt didn't end horribly. It, not horribly, but didn't end uh, with happiness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then finally, ultimately, I came away with a lack of connection, which is, to be fair, perhaps the effect that Egan is going for. It's as not. Individual sh- <laughs> <laughs> as individual short stories, I think the chapters presented in A Visit from the Goon Squad make for haunting brief glimpses into the lives of terrible people. But as a novel, it's hard to stick with them for the good moments. While I'm quite glad I read it, if only to catch up with the rest of the literary world, I'm a little bewildered by the fact it won the Pulitzer Prize for literature. Comparing this to, say, Middlesex is asking for a visit from the Goon Squad to to be utterly blown out of the water. So here we see some of her, I think, literary snobbery where Middlesex is definitely not contemporary fiction. Uh, (laughs) Mm -hmm. That is a classic piece um definitely literature with a capital l um so i think missing missing the um the genius of the novel being that it is so experimental and that it's diving into it it's not so much about the human it is about human connections but about those human connections that seem to be fleeting or or darker and stuff like that it, it's not meant to be this happy-go-lucky story and it's not meant to have a to be tidy um overall which i think is what this author is is really railing against in a lot yeah. of ways um yeah but but yeah and the the description of the characters as terrible people there are some pretty terrible people like jules i mean yeah He's not a nice guy. He's not a good person. Right. Um, yeah. 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 <laughs> it's well, For sure. I think, I don't know. Also, I just checked because I was just curious. Middlesex was published in 2002. I'd call that contemporary-ish. Yeah. Um, I, well, there's two things here. I think most of those quotes 
the foundation of them is she doesn't think it's a novel, which I think there's a good faith argument. I don't know if her she outlines it quite as thoroughly as I would need to be compelled to that reading. Um, a publication is does not is certainly the the manner in which they were published is not going to convince me that it's not a novel because it, it <laughs> that's what percent three of the thirteen like there's a lot more story here than three that were published separately anyway so I'm not compelled by that um, but also. The other thing that undergirds a lot of these, if you look at these quotes, is that she thinks the characters are bad people and doesn't like them. I just, that line of criticism is never lands with me. I thought the most fascinating thing to unpack and study was the magazine article, and he's an awful person. That's the whole satire exactly. in that chapter. <laughs> That's the whole yeah. thing, is exposing his kind of shallow intellectualism and then pushing it against a person who we've already seen has like a real, because of the dictator chapter, has a real like intense moralistic stance or something i think the other thing i guess i would say i don't i don't know this is of course in my reading not at all a short story i know you'd mentioned um a short story collection i should say i know you had mentioned the kind of novelistic tendency we have for more character growth evolution and, and all that kind of stuff and i do i do agree that it does lack that but i don't know if that doesn't mean there's no depth like, I guess my question would be, at the end of this book, let's say we just picked three characters, like Scotty, Benny, and Sasha. You don't think those characters get a novelistic level of depth? I th- and that I would be because definitely do. Yeah, because I, I, of course they don't grow, and maybe this book is a little more bleak and uh, depressing in that sense. I know that she also mentioned that some of them don't end well or happily. Another line of criticism that's just utterly meaningless to me. I don't get that I don't, who says things have to end well like i don't understand that um that's a measure of likeness how much you like it maybe not a measure of like quality or um you know interest or, or anyway whatever um but like that's also again where that line of criticism would fall down a bit because i think the the characters are fascinating and would be worth and difficult to unpack and understand um like i i guess we can just do I don't know. Who knows if listeners listen to it, but like compare them to the characters in Pachinko, you know, which is a very novels, novel, long tail story, big, big focus on the same cast, you know, more or less over a huge amount of time. Like, I feel like I've said as much about Sasha as I could say about some of her kids in that story. And in fact, I don't know, there's something about putting characters into the more rigid structures of a novel growth that actually makes them a little easier to explain. Like, I think I would have a much simpler time explaining some of the characters in Pachinko and it, and analyzing them, like, pretty directly than these characters. Which I, again, and this is just, I think, my bias in, towards literature, is I like this feeling more, where I feel on less steady ground and, like, I have to think a little more to kind of clarify some things. And whereas with Pachinko, I feel like I could summarize a couple of those characters, though they get hundreds of pages more, pretty pretty clearly and, like, pretty abruptly or directly. Um, it is a different approach, to be sure, to writing a, just writing a story. Um but uh, yeah, which, we, yeah. Uh, which is why we enjoyed it so much, I think. Yeah, it's interesting though. And I don't I think again there's a good I think a pretty good faith strong argument that this is not a novel. I just I, so far I haven't seen it presented in a way that's really compelled me at all. Um, cuz I definitely think it is it is a novel, but yeah, well interesting. No, and I I don't know. I I just have to make fun of the like 
I can't relate to any of these people or they're all bad people. Therefore, this book is bad. <laughs> like I just I make fun of that whenever it comes up in any format, in any any avenue. I just do not fundamentally do not understand reading books to find people to like. Like, I don't get that at all. But um, <laughs> anyway, that's I think that's fine. And I haven't read Middlesex, so I don't know. I can't compare those directly. That also won a Pulitzer. So I just Googled it quick because I wasn't I, th- I think I was confusing that with a different novel. But anyway, yeah, kind of contemporary. I definitely was. I was thinking of Middlemarch. Yes. Yeah, I think I was, too. Yeah. Um, great. Okay. And then mine is from Entertainment Weekly, you know, that classic Ooh. passion of literary taste. <laughs> I saw that, well, I saw it come up, and then because of the title of the article, they did get me in, so they, they did it. Good job. Um, they rated it their best book of the decade. That was why I was like, okay, something like really effusively positive. Uh, and it is written by their kind of like five or seven staff members. I think this must have been something they like voted on. And the decade, to be clear, would be the 2010s. So 10 to 10, 2010 to 2010. 2020. And I just pulled a couple quotes from various staff members, people who read the book and obviously elected it this to give it this title. First quote, I couldn't stop talking about it, uh, talking about it. I hadn't read anything like it, a wild, utterly postmodern work that careened its way through 13 interlinked stories, blasting from the past to the future, hunting for parrots and aging rock stars equally devoted to punk and PowerPoint before ending on a note of resounding, dizzying humanity. It's tender and grim and shocking and kind. I'll never forget what it felt like to close that book. I haven't experienced that feeling since. So I guess let's just put it up against the the blog you had read from because I yeah I hearing the numbers laid out as you laid them out the like three of these end well ten don'ts kind of math I think the sentence it's tender and grim and shocking and kind I thought this book was a lot kinder and gentler than than that ten versus three kind of summary if that may like that math just it's but I guess maybe that's the fool's errand of just reading how a book ends and assessing its entire project on the ending alone or something. But it is because that math just does not feel right to me at all. I found this to be quite a kind and generous book. But yeah, like even think of the chapter, ultimately, probably the darkest of them all, the one where Rob dies. Like I found that to be a very sweet chapter of a person who is depressed and lashing out and like just struggling to be to stay alive but i thought the portrayal was pretty i don't know it was like sensitive or human or something um so yeah i don't i i think i like this description more than the whole it's a very unhappy book like this reading this book didn't make me feel unhappy if that makes sense it does um the endings for for the book for the stories tend to be you know not the happiest of endings, but that doesn't mean that they were not worthy stories. Like I enjoyed reading them. I wasn't depressed (laughs) after finishing these stories. Um, You just feel it's like, um, like bittersweet. A lot of it, Mm -hmm. right. Where you, the exploration of each character, the exploration of these storylines, it's, it, it's done really well. And, and, at the end, I mean, it doesn't always end well for for the characters, but I mean, yeah. the, you know, that's life. Like, <laughs> you enjoy the highs and you endure the lows. So, and yeah. and a couple of times too, like the characters might not have the happy ending at the end, but then we might revisit them later and they'll have happier adult lives. Yeah, Benny, I feel like is the classic. He whiplashes back and forth all across this book. 
He's he's up, <laughs> yeah. he's down, he's up, he's down. Like it doesn't. He even ends in kind of a puzzling middle ground of his life scenes. He's got a you know the the narrator makes a point like oh he's a beautiful young wife now and a kid and uh, we don't know obviously then what happened to his suburban family <laughs> they just abandoned. Yep. So there is a tinge of you know eeriness, sadness there. And but yeah, but also he's just found a new hit with Scotty and made his dream come true, perhaps. So I don't know though. I like the ambivalent emotional states in books like that. Yeah. I don't. Yeah, yeah. I think that. Well, anyway, fair, fair to say, different expectations. A couple more quotes. This one's longer, but I, the point it delivers, I think, is the, what I wanted to discuss. Um, this novel is one of tw- the 2010's hippest reads. Given that fact, plus its exotic architecture and music biz milieu, the temptation might be to not revisit Egan's Pulitzer Prize-winning book of fiction for fear that the book might itself have been scarred by time's merciless thugs. That's the goon squad. <laughs> um, in fact, rereading the novel a decade on, its tales seem as fresh and funny, if also as tragic, as they did on publication. So do you think this book aged well? Because obviously that's the point of that quote. Yeah, I think so. I, I think that it's, yeah, it's still an interesting read. I think that it's still relevant. Yeah. Um, the, the ideas of power, powerlessness, and and of um, getting to, you know, find your own identity and your own place in society. Yeah, I think those are all still relevant. Yeah, it, and I think so too. I hadn't read this, though I'd owned a you know, used copy forever. I'd never picked it up. And even the final chapter, which would age the worst if any of them did, because of how technology moves forward and social media changes and stuff, even that I didn't think was corny. It maybe was close, though. It was edging on it, but I think actually still holds up okay given the way technology has progressed. Um, and I think some of the more eerie New York setting stuff worked well in that chapter and created a certain kind of mood, a certain kind of oppressive mood. I think that actually worked well. But the social media stuff, I think I was just on the edge. I, I like the way that Lulu spoke in kind of corporate double speak to, to Alex. I thought that was really effective, that her... Yeah. It also lined up well with what maybe in, in her childhood trauma with the hands of the dictator, uh, the life that she was <laughs> headed towards, a kind of very powerful, in-control type of person and um, assertive and, and dominant in a way too so I, I thought that actually her conversation with him was pretty good uh, a couple more quotes this one's very short but effective I read good um, I read a visit from the goon squad in a bud, the good squad, why did I type that? Um, goon squad in a book club full of similarly aged women whose opinions were summed up by a friend who said I'm not sure what this book is about but I do love it <laughs> so I, I think, I mean, there's also the opposite could equally happen. I'm not sure what this book about, and I do hate that. <laughs> um, and I thought that was a charming quote. That author, I didn't pull the full quote, but she grew up in the 70s, like as a kid. So she said that that chapter of the punk scene and them going to that really violent show and, you know, having that inappropriate relationship with the exec, like that, all those dynamics, kids just kind of roaming free in the 70s, living pretty grungy. That was what she said was really well done. And that's what she means when it says, similarly aged women it's like people who grew up in that scene in the 70s i guess um yeah i don't, yeah and i wasn't sure like we'll get to this in the recommendation but there were times when i couldn't quite describe this either but i don't know there's a pleasure in that to me it doesn't make me upset it makes me curious um, final quote here. My first read of it remains the only time in my whole life that a PowerPoint presentation has reduced me to tears. I only wish I could tell my college self that I'd love it as much as anything from my revered Victorian masters or that Egan's Pulitzer Prize winner is removed from those classics, not at all in measures of originality or depth, but only what a century and a half. So the final quote, that's the, you know, capital L literary. That's a person who I think they said they had studied, I guess, Victorian era literature. Um, 
What do you think? Is Does it have a sort of a masterful originality or depth? I think that it's, yeah, I mean, uh, yes. Yes, I think, <laughs> I think I would. Because uh, I'm thinking of it not in terms, because it's so different. It's so wildly different from from like Victorian era literature is so different from your capital L literature classics. But if I were to compare it to something like a, a more modern classic, like Winesburg, Ohio, we definitely consider that a classic. We consider that capital L literature. And it was like so new, the format for that at the time, which is the short story collection. If I were to compare it to that, then yes, absolutely, this is this could, over time, I think, be considered a classic. Yeah, I think its fragmentary nature does reflect something about storytelling and changes in that and the time period and the age we're in. And I don't know. We're not here to make our, to make our master's thesis <laughs> and to pitch it and to outline <laughs> it or whatever. But I do think that, I mean, it just always keep in mind that today's revered masters will be tomorrow's forgotten authors and then today's contemporary work will be a hundred years as master i don't you know how it is that's how time goes so you know the only the only author who gets to who gets to hold his position is shakespeare everyone else gets forgotten or moved on from or whatever (laughs) um and maybe a couple others but no yeah so it's i don't know I, i always i'm always suspicious of people who only engage with older art in that superiority claim um Though I also have done that myself at times too. So, but no, it was, yeah, I, I'm not sure if I would throw it in some pantheon of great modern, uh, not modern, I should say contemporary literature, but I did think it was, it really represents a shift in like how to approach studying uh, humans. <laughs> and yeah, yeah I sure. thought it was intriguing for sure. Um, yeah. Any other thoughts on those quotes? That's the last one. Those are all from different authors, by the way. I should have pulled their names, but it's it was the whole yeah. staff who wrote that. Yeah. No, I thought that was great. Yeah, and a good contrast, too. I'm glad you found a negative one. Yeah. I didn't like these people either, Amanda, but I did like the book. So as it turns out, <laughs> that is possible. <laughs> uh, just imagine, it's just so, I don't know, I don't, whatever. I, the, just, just Let's just take that line of criticism and shake it out just a little bit further. Like, do you want to read a book where people only do things you'd agree with and that are smart and good to do? Like, I don't get, I just feel like that line of criticism runs into a brick wall super fast. Because it's like, well, okay, the alternative is that you're going to agree with everything they do and like them a lot, and they're going to be, like, behave perfectly. Like, what? Where? Where's the interest in that? That's not interesting. Yeah. <laughs> if the characters solve every problem right away and do it to your liking, like, what? What is? I don't. Yeah, anyway, I don't. <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah. I, yeah, it's a strange qualification to kind of throw into a book. Anyway, um, enough of a tangent there. Let's do our <laughs> Hall of Fame. Let's end our part two with what we always do, and that's the Lightly Literary Hall of Fame. We're each going to choose something from this work to induct, something we thought was really memorable or well done or just worth, yeah, calling attention to and praising. I'll go first because yours is, I think, the one we both should have done, but I zagged, so we'll let you. <laughs> Although mine, the way I was going to phrase mine was different than yours, but anyway, let me just do mine because the Sasha analysis did reveal this kind of thread to me and I'm going to induct it. I just oh, think nice. I just think like the non-chronology of this ended up working and it made me really nervous and annoyed in the first maybe 3 chapters cuz I think it confused me more than anything else. You, you really have to wrap your head around it. But I think by the end, especially after Sasha maybe had come up in a couple chapters as like a periphery character, I got almost when I would flip the page to the new chapter 
I would almost get like nervous anticipating who was going to be in it and who wasn't, what time it could possibly and what time it couldn't. And I think that that really just achieved a kind of apex of effect in the final chapter because it was kind of sci-fi-ish. And I mean, I like that kind of storytelling and speculative fiction. So I think to end it that way was just the perfect cap for me because I was so primed to be excited for the you know, for the inventiveness of what was coming. And I think that attitude, again, my attitude on that, I think, shifted maybe after like four or five chapters, maybe three or four chapters, where instead of turning and being exhausted by like, oh, God, what are what are, am I going to have to figure out and put up with? And like, who, where are we jumping? Um, as soon as you get on board with that decision, I was extremely excited to be like, what is she going to turn her? What interests her? You know, like, where is her literary interest going to jump to? Uh, and trying to piece that together, not maybe not predict, it's impossible to predict, but at least try and like piece it together and figure it out. Um, in that sense, it retains a kind of puzzle boxiness. But yes, I'm inducting the non-chronology of this story. I like that. And, and the non-chronology of, of the overall structure, too. I just, I'm still thinking, and I perhaps I'll have to reread this book. Um, I'm still thinking, like, what what are the connections? How did she choose which stories to put in where. Yeah. So, yeah, um, yeah I'm, I'm going to have to go back and, and look at that really closely because it's still, it doesn't bother me. It's just something that I would like to figure out because I'm, I'm really intrigued by it. And it's just another level of intrigue and of, and of making this, this book all the more unique. I yeah. Think. No, definitely. Yeah. And how about for your in- induction? Selection. Uh, for me, I said the the best use of PowerPoint slides ever um, <laughs> yeah, in a novel. It. Like, come on, yeah, for sure. It, <laughs> I just so enjoyed the PowerPoint slides, and um, uh, I just really, <laughs> when I first saw it, I was like, "What is going on?" And I love this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it it also yeah. reads at kind of a clip, but it's got a depth to it yeah and yeah. i already criticized it earlier but i di- i didn't love all of them but i think that actually works well <laughs> there are enough yeah. of them that are deeply visually compelling and like interesting and line up and everything so yeah I, I almost kind of appreciate that there's some that i'm just like why is this this doesn't make any sense but yeah, yeah. good for a 12 year old yeah <laughs> very well done for a 12 year old yeah really astounding <laughs> they, between her and her brother they have a extreme expertise and accomplishment at a young age uh, with with different things <laughs> uh, analyses of things so yeah any final thoughts on a visit from the goon squad should have asked you for the essay of time as a character in this story but too late no we're not going to do new essay tops topics <laughs> um anyway because of how it comes up in the end hope you enjoyed the book club part two as always dear listeners thanks for making it until the end we always appreciate that um you can find us on again facebook and instagram at the lightly literary podcast which is all one word it's where we post updates about the books we're reading and kind of our schedule and reminders of what we've been covering so check us out there anywhere that you can rate us on a podcast platform helps a ton so Spotify, iTunes, anything like that is, again, beneficial. And I believe that's how they promote stuff. So it, it does help a ton. If this book did not interest you, well, then thanks for listening through anyway. <laughs> but if it did, we have other books coming up. We always pick a few books ahead in order. Amanda, do you want to cover those quickly? Yeah, next up is Pandora's Jar, Women in the Greek Myths. And that's by Natalie Haynes, who's an academic and a comedian. Um, Civil Warland and Bad Decline by George Saunders. And then 
Speaking of classics, yeah, um, to the lighthouse by Virginia Woolf. Yeah, we'll see what we make of that. Try and unspool it as best we can. A book I have failed to read a couple times. Have you tried? Have you started it? At I all? have. Yeah, I think a few times actually, and oh, hit page. No. I don't know, ten to fifteen, and just kind of fizzle out. Well, yeah, I don't know though. It's. I also have never had to do it. Having a reason to read does help me, does not hurt. So if I if I know I have a goal, I think it will actually benefit me, um, causes me to read differently and like focus more. So yeah, I'm very intrigued by that. I loved her nonfiction in, in college. So, you know, Room of One's Own and all that. She's, yeah, excellent writer. Great. So we hope you join us for those books. Keep an eye on the feed for upcoming book recommendations and book clubs. Keep up with us there. And as always, we'll see you between the pages.